All right. Um, the Chattanooga Food Bank. I forgot to. I'll post this letter out here, but they just a letter of thank you for the 221 pounds of food that was given. Uh, says last year the Chattanooga Area Food Bank was able to provide more than 13,600 emergency food boxes to over 125,000 families. That's a lot for this area. Of course, they cover, you know, tri-state area, but still, that's a lot of families. So, gratefully, we can have a part in that. I've also was given a lead, I should just mention that, uh, on a, and you can be turning to, to the book of Jude, if you would, while we're talking about these things. But uh, I was giving a lead on a program down in Ringgold, Georgia, where churches can give food or money to this organization, and then they, in turn, will give us vouchers. And then all, when people come and want to, you know, have, need, have a need for food or whatever, we can just hand them this voucher. And this guy was said, uh, I don't know if your church would be interested in that or not. I said, would we ever? <laughs> Give me that information. And so hopefully I'll be getting that. Now, another prayer request. I won't, I'll be gone this week, so if you wouldn't mind remembering me, I've got to travel over to Greenville, South Carolina, and I'll be over at Bob Jones University all this week representing BIMI at their Missions Emphasis Week, and then coming back on Friday. And uh, so if you'd remember that, please. Anything? Did I forget anything I ought to be talking about? Oh, yeah. And then Wednesday night at our men's meeting, we voted John Bales that was here on the church representing USA missions here in America and their church planning efforts and or reopening or trying to revive churches that have struggled um, we voted to give his Reseeding America. That's the, the name of that fund that he started to do that with. And we voted to give um, $500 towards that. It was a one-time gift, of course. And um, so uh, hopefully we just pray that God will use that and he'll use it wisely and it'll, it'll achieve the things we desire there and, and seeing people come to Christ. Okay. I guess I'll go ahead and give you a forewarning just in case. Now, if I happen to not go, now last week I let you out five minutes early. This week possibly could even sooner than that. I didn't sleep good last night. I was awake from about 2 o'clock to about 5.30 this morning or maybe 6. I can't remember what time it was when I fell back asleep for just a little time, while. But didn't have a good night last night. And that's one of the worst ones I've had in a long time. But I woke up. I fell back asleep, dozed, and, of course, I woke up tired this morning. So we'll see what goes here. Jude. I want to hit a couple highlights here in the book of Jude, beginning in verse 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith, which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God, and our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll be touching on some other verses, but I want to stop there for the moment. 
You know, this book, obviously, as you well know, is near the end of the Bible. There's only one more book in the Bible after this one, the book of Revelation. And it's often been noted that it occurs, you know, there's a progression somewhat in these epistles that appear at the end of the, of the New Testament of a movement towards maturity. That is, the heavier, more difficult to understand maybe in some sense, uh, maybe uh, deeper uh, depth of diligence and spirit required to comprehend and understand just what the writer's talking about. And that may or may not be true. I don't know that to be the case. It's often, you know, been noted to be that way. And there does seem to be an awful lot of difficult things, uh, hard things, in the book of Jude. And there's an awful lot of warning given here, just like you have in the book of Hebrews and, and also in First and Second Peter. Strong, strong warnings given to Christians who depart from the faith, or seek to subvert those who are walking in the faith to turn them away from the faith, one or the other. And you'll notice a very strong contrast throughout this epistle because he mentions, just as we saw here in the very first few verses, he talks about you, beloved, you, 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 these personal pronouns. And then he says, certain men, they, them, your back to you, back to themselves, back to they, their own, and so forth, all throughout this epistle. And there's a constant back and forth, back and forth between them and us. We and they. And so there's a strong contrast between the conduct and walk and practice of one who is in the faith and one who... Is not in the faith, or one who professes to be in the faith, but doesn't walk accordingly. Now, he, the first thing he talks about there in verse 1, he says, about them that are sanctified by God the Father. Sanctified, meaning set apart. Now, some translations have the word beloved there, beloved by God the Father. Beloved would imply the same thing, this special relationship that they have with God the Father. Sanctified, something set apart for a specific, sacred, godly use. And the second thing he says there, he says they're called. Called. They have a calling. You know, this, there's, there's very little spoken of today about the Christian's calling. Most of what you hear today on popular preaching and the radio and, and TV programs and so on is just, you know, come to Jesus, make sure you're saved so you're going to heaven. And that's, you know, man, we're all happy then, aren't we? And that's just the end of it. When the Bible gives so much more 
to Christianity and the calling of a Christian than just being happy that I'm saved or that I'm going to heaven or that my eternal destiny is settled and I'm okay. And so this calling that that Jude is talking about here and these that he's writing to carries a heavy weight as we saw concerning those who walk faithfully according to their calling and those who do not. Now he talks about the fact of earnestly contending for the faith. Why would a person have to earnestly contend for the faith? Why would he give such an admonition to us? Why would Jude make it seem so important that we should earnestly, fervently, with great energy and zeal, contend for the faith? Well, as we look at the rest of this epistle, and of course if we could just examine the rest of the New Testament, we find the reason why is because there are those who seek to detract us from the faith. There are those who would think it wonderful and lovely if we would just disappear from the earth and no longer be a source of contention or conviction in their side because of the faith or because of those who have held to the faith and then departed from it and walked away and just gave it all up. Now, I'm here to tell you that they walked away knowing that there was a God in heaven. They walked away having trusted in Jesus Christ. They knew him as their Savior. So they just couldn't see any point, no purpose to life. Or the cares of this world pulled them away. And they gave in. And turned away from the faith. And so Jude's admonition to us is in the face of all of that. We need to be careful to contend for the faith. I look at faith in the New Testament. And I'm talking about the faith as the body of truth. That Jesus Christ and the apostles. Particularly those that recorded for us the New Testament have given to us. And it's the truth or the embodiment of the faith. I view it as something like these lights that are on here or the sun that shines upon the earth. Without energy being poured into it, these lights could not come on. Without energy from the sun, you could have no light upon the earth. But you take away the source of the energy and the light just disappears. It's gone. You know, there's no light. There's no switch back there to turn on darkness. You ever think about it that way? Doesn't happen that way, does it? Because darkness does not require any power. Light requires power. 
And for there to be faith in the life of a Christian, an ongoing godly faith, you have to have power in your life. Now, God's given us the resource for that power, and it's right here. It's in this word. It's taking in the knowledge of this word that gives us the resource to walk in that light, in that power. If you quit doing that, if you give up that source and relinquish it, then what happens to your life? Well, you begin to slip away, and though you're a Christian, you begin to walk in darkness. And, of course, the New Testament is very clear in its admonitions to us to, to be careful to walk in the light. It's a choice we make. You know, turn with me back now to the book of Colossians. We studied through this book earlier. I preached all the way through this epistle. In the book of Colossians, the first chapter... One of the things we noted there was in verse 13, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, where it says, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son which is the kingdom of light. If you look up at verse 12, he tells us there at the end of his prayer, giving thanks unto God the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. There's an article there that's not in the King James. It's in the light. And so when he... When he when this great transaction took place, God translated us or moved us, transferred us from or out of, because the word is ek, it's out of the power of darkness and into the power of his kingdom, the kingdom of his dear son. And one of the things that we noted there, this little word in, means in the sphere of. To walk within the sphere of the kingdom of God's Son. And so when, when it comes to being a Christian and observing the calling that Jude is talking about in verse 1 of Jude 1. And contending for the faith is to walk in that sphere of the king of, of God's the kingdom of God's son it's to walk with a certain spirit it's to walk with a certain attitude now we've been talking quite a bit on Wednesday nights about the word spirit <coughs> and uh, brother Mike's been leading us in that and it's been a wonderful study and you'll find that the word spirit 
it's not always Holy Spirit. I mean, there's all kinds of spirits in the New Testament. And that's why John tells us to, uh, to test the spirits, to see whether they're of God. Because there are many spirits about. And to walk in the spirit, or actually it's without the article there in Galatians 5, to walk in spirit. It's the same thing as walking in or remaining in the sphere of this kingdom of God's dear son. Walking according to that principle. Now, coming back to the book of Jude. Coming back to the book of Jude, we see then that there is a necessity to contend for the faith because if we do not walk within the sphere of that light of God's kingdom, then there's only one other sphere that you can walk in, and that's in the power of darkness. And Christians can relinquish that and slip over into that sphere. In other words, they're not walking by faith. They're walking according to the power of darkness. And they didn't even have to flip the switch on to do it. It just came about automatically. When they gave up maintaining that relationship with God through his word. That's why the necessity of the living word through this written word here, is so important to us. Now, he goes on in verse 4 to talk about the contrary. What has happened? He says, certain men crept in unawares, silently, in amongst the fellowship of God's saints. Now, we did a long study on the word church a while back, and we made a special note of the fact that church is not something we do. Church is not a building. Church is what we are. Church is what we are when we are assembled together like we are this morning. Matter of fact, a good proper translation, you know, church really is not a a translation of the Greek word. The word means to assemble together or congregate together. So when we come out to congregate together, he says, men, certain men have crept in unawares. Now, some of you have had that experience in the past. Those who crept in unawares, who were before of old, Ordained to this condemnation, this condemnation of judgment, that is. Ungodly men turning, here's what they do. They turn, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness or wanton looseness, unbridled lust. In other words, tearing off all the restraints that keep us moral and right before God and just... Casting it off and letting their lusts direct their life. Letting their desires of their own flesh determine the direction they're going to go in life. 
and how they're going to walk. You see, for a godly person, it requires restraint. We make decisions about how we're going to live our lives each day. And we choose to do certain things. We choose not to do other things. Well, he tells us here, these who turn the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Denying him. Now, there are those who would like to say, well, these people here, they're, they're not even Christians. They were never saved to begin with. But I would like to tell you there are several passages in the New Testament that talk about Christians, disciples, who turn and deny the Lord Jesus Christ. The most classic one of all being Judas. But I'm not going to take the time to look at Judas this morning. Let's just turn and look at a couple of passages Look at Matthew chapter 16 for a moment. A very well-known passage there concerning discipleship. (coughs) And this gives us the positive side of denying. In Matthew 16 and verse 24... It says there, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, his disciples, If any man, he says, will come after me, then let him deny himself. That's the positive side of denial. You deny yourself and you give your desires over to the Lord Jesus Christ because you determine to follow him. Now, that's a disciple. That's one who has decided they are going to follow Jesus and will take up his cross and follow me. Now, you know, when Jesus said, count the cost, count the cost before you do something like this, he was talking about this, this very issue right here. A disciple who determines to be a true follower of Christ, one who believes in the Lord Jesus and wants to fulfill to the utmost their calling and determines to follow Christ, doesn't just follow Christ. He also takes up a cross. The cross carries some negative connotations with it because it talks about trial. It talks about suffering. It speaks of a life that demands constant devotion because there's going to be a tough road to trod. Turn with me also over to Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, if you would. Second Timothy and chapter 2. Now, in this passage, <coughs> again, Paul in his epistle, is writing to um, Timothy, his son in the faith. And he tells him in verse 12, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12, he talks about this suffering. He says, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. 
if we deny him, he also will deny us. Now, that's some pretty strong words. If we deny him, it is if we deny him by not suffering with him, by not bearing our cross, if we choose to turn the other way, or as Luke says it, if we, if we put our hands to the plow and then turn back and give up, then he says, Luke says, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. Well, Paul's saying the same thing here. When he says, we shall reign with him, that's in the kingdom that Jesus is going to establish when he comes back. And he says, if we deny him, then he's also going to deny us. And if we deny him in that fashion, then he's going to deny us the privilege of reigning in his kingdom with him. So, discipleship then, and denying the Lord, whom Jude is referencing here in verse 4, to deny the Lord is a grave thing. And it carries a lot of responsibility with it. He calls them ungodly men. And of course, that's pretty much what you would expect, isn't it? Titus chapter 1, just a couple pages over from Timothy. In Titus chapter 1, he speaks of the same thing there. In verse, um, what was it, verse 16? Same kind of men that you find in, in the book of Jude. He says, they profess that they know God, but in works, they deny him. And so here you seem to have another little twist on it, you see. These certain men who crept in unawares. Well, why was it, how was it that they could creep in unawares into the fellowship and congregation of God's people? And, and they not know about it. Well, it's because they profess to know God. But in practice, in the way they're living, he says they deny him. Now, that's pretty strong stuff. Because that gets right down to the nitty-gritty of where we live every day and the choices we make, the things we do. And he says there, these people, they're abominable and disobedient and to every good work, reprobate. Now, the word reprobate there just means disapproved. Their, their, their good works are not going to be approved. And we could very easily at this point go back to Matthew chapter 7, which we did last week, and point out that a lot of people on the day of judgment are going to come before the Lord Jesus Christ and say, Lord, Lord, have we not done all these things in your name? And Jesus is going to turn to them and say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work lawlessness. They don't do good works. Now they, in their mind think they're doing good works. But they're doing so out of their own flesh and not according to this spirit of walking in the light that we've been talking about. Walking in that sphere of God's uh, Son 
and his kingdom. Turn over towards uh, the end of this letter to verse 17, if you would. In verse 17, he says, But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How that, or because they told you there should be mockers in the last time, who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. Now, that word mockers is an interesting word. If you trace it back to its final, the root that it came from, it comes from the word for a young child. And if you think of this in the sense of mockery or scorn, you think of a young child who is mocking or making fun of someone, as children often do. And that's what he's talking about here. Only he's talking about grown men and women. These who have crept into the church. Unawares, he said they're making a, like a, a childlike mockery. In the book of Peter, he translates, it's translated as scorners. They scorn or make a mockery of those who adhere to and hold to the faith. And then he says there, he says, who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. You know, the book of Ephesians talks a lot about walk and the walk and the warfare of a Christian. And the word walk is pretty prominent in that book. But it's not the same word you have here. In the book of Galatians, Paul says in Galatians 5, 16, he says, If you walk in spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That word walk there is not the same as the word here. It's a different word. A different Greek word, that is. Same English word, but a different Greek word. And the word here means to depart, to go on a journey, to continue one's way. In other words, they followed a path and they're just heading right on down the path. The word walk in Ephesians and Galatians and those where it's used in a positive sense, talk, when, in other words, when it's talking about walking in a manner that is well-pleasing unto the Lord, it's just a word for get out and go somewhere. In other words, when we're actually just in motion doing something with respect to our faith, we are doing so in a manner that pleases God and is well-pleasing to Him. Here, they've chosen to go down a certain path and they're just continuing on down that path on their journey until they reach the desired end. Of course, in the, in the end, they're not going to enjoy it. They're not going to like it. He says in verse 19, These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit. Now, I read it just like it is in the King James, but there's no article there. And in my Bible, in this edition, uh, uh, they've capitalized the word Spirit, but I don't think it's the Holy Spirit here. 
just like we've been talking about on Wednesday night. It's a little less here. Those who do not walk in spirit. What do you mean here? Walk in spirit. I mean walk in that sphere of light. Walking in that sphere of the kingdom of God's dear son. Walking according to the faith, that is. And he says, these these who are the mockers, they separate themselves. They're sensual. And the word sensual there, well, let's look back at, uh, it's, it's translated natural. Do this, let's turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where we'll see the same word. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he talks about these people as being sensual. Well, back in 1 Corinthians, Paul is making a contrast here about between the spiritual person, that is the one who walks according to spirit, as opposed to the natural man, the one who walks according to his senses. That's why it makes him sensual. In other words... His little world, his little sphere of life, the only thing he knows is what he perceives by his five senses, touching, tasting, seeing, smelling, so forth, hearing. That's his world. That's all he knows. But as we saw in Hebrews chapter 11, the one who walks according to faith walks according to that which is unseen. And the reason he walks according to that which is unseen is because it is based squarely and solidly on the word of God, that which God has said. It's the spoken word. Not the word logos, but rhema, the spoken word. It is that which God has actually spoken. Now, I don't mean... That he, well, what I do mean is, is that on the positive side, whether he spoke those words to somebody like Moses or whether he, through his Holy Spirit, inspired men to write and record down this living word we have here. And so they walk a different way. Verse 14, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. That would have to be a little less there again, see? The, 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 the Spirit of God here would have to be those things that relate to this Spirit of what God has revealed to us in His Word. In other words, it makes no sense to compare Holy Spirit with a natural man. But if you compare a natural man and one who walks according to his senses as opposed to one who walks according to spirit, then it makes all the sense in the world. And he says, for they are foolishness unto him. You see, the natural man who walks according to his senses, when you talk about things of the spirit, it's foolishness to him. If I can't see it, taste it, hear it, touch it, smell it. It's of no value to me. 
Well, as a matter of fact, he's, Paul says there, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. He can't even comprehend or know things of the Spirit because he's only attuned to his five senses. Now, that's, that's the kind of person that Jude has spent this entire little epistle he's written here talking about, warning us about. Warning us because they've crept in unawares and there are people, very likely, near you. They could pull you away from the faith and turn you from following the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're warned against such men. Having not Spirit. But you, beloved, he says, you, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in, and again, there's no article here, praying in Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God. You see, it requires energy. It requires energy power. It requires effort to keep yourselves in the love of God. It's a choice you make. It's a choice I make. I choose what I'm going to do with my time. I choose what I'm going to look at, what I'm going to listen to, what I allow to come into my, my, my body, my mind, through my senses is a choice of mine. And those things that we choose wrongly can detract us and turn us from walking in spirit. That's why he admonishes us to keep ourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Or, as you well know, age-abiding life, age-lasting life, millennial life, kingdom life. The kingdom life that is promised to those who walk in faith. And now and then I want to finish up with verse 24. He says now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. You know you and this all sounds so terrible, so frightful, so scary. How do I know I'm walking in the faith? How do I know if God's going to accept me? You know, walking by faith, walking in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ is a joyful thing when you keep your eye fixed on the promise that lies out ahead for us, just like Jesus did. You remember that? Hebrews chapter 12. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. We're called upon to endure the cross. We just saw that in Matthew 16. If any man will come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. If we endure the cross, well, actually the only way we will endure the cross is by keeping our eye fixed on the joy that is out ahead of us waiting for us in that future day. 
Now, the joy for the Lord Jesus Christ will be when he comes back to this earth to take the throne that his father has promised to him and he will rule this earth for a thousand years. The joy for you and I, according to the promises of God's word, is to share in that future rule and sit on a throne with him. Sharing in a future rule of this earth. Now, I know an awful lot of Christians who think that everybody... I just read something to you. Remember that? Just a few, a couple, three or four weeks ago. I, well, I didn't read it. I keep forgetting to bring it in here. It's still on my desk. I quoted it. I read it again. He says, everybody who's a Christian is going to rule and reign with Jesus in the millennium. He, and this guy's a Ph.D., a doctor of theology. That's what Ph.D. is, doctor of theology. You realize that's a four-year undergraduate degree, another four-year master of theology degree, and then two more years to get his doctor of theology degree. And he says everybody's going to be there. Everybody gets to rule with Jesus. Well, that's not what I read. Not at all. Not at all. Now unto him that is able... That's not a promise that everybody's going to be there. He is able to keep you from falling. Able to keep you in his love. Able to keep you walking in faith. Able to keep you walking in the light. But you and I, we have to keep our eyes on him. We have to live in this word. Now, I don't mean sit around and read your Bible 24-7. When I say live in this word, I mean live in the light of the knowledge of this word. And his promise to us to present you faultless, blameless. You know, that's possible. I wonder sometimes, how in the world can that be when I know all that's wrong with me? How in the world is, could God ever do that? But you know, the promise of his word is, is if I remain faithful, walking in the light, dutiful according to the faith, he's going to do what he said right here. He can present me. He can present me. Faultless before the presence of his glory. Well, the presence of his glory is just another expression that talks about the glory of his return when he comes to set up his kingdom. At that time, he can present me faultless before him with exceeding joy. Now, I just love to grab a hold of verses like that and just hang on for dear life because that means an awful lot to me. See, I, I, I struggle just like you do. There's a devilish world out here that has a powerful pull on us and wants to detract us, pull us away from the faith and would be more than happy to send us off into oblivion and let the cosmos 
the order of this present world have its own way. But the promise of God to you and I is if we endure steadfast in this faith, we're going to one day see exceeding joy and greatness like we've never understood or never known before. You know, with this funeral I was telling you about of Bill Long, that it was a very, he was a very godly man. And I, and I can really, truly say I really loved that guy. He was a precious, precious person. He would be the, the, the manly side of somebody like Abinell, see? Sweet lady. Lovely lady. He was a great guy. He was a chief of police, very well thought of in this community. One of his disciples, in other words, a student he had when he taught at Tennessee Temple, is now the sheriff of Hamilton County. Is it Hamilton County or the city? Is Jim Hammond. That's county sheriff, isn't it? Come on, you don't know any more than I do about your sheriff? I think I'm right. Okay. He's a graduate of Tennessee Temple. He was there and had a part in the service. They had a... a, 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 He was the representation of the police department because he had been a chief of police. And... There was, of course, um, at the he was buried at the National Cemetery, so you had military presence there. Two soldiers dressed in uniform, uh, standing watch over the casket, and then you had um, a guy off on on the side over here. When all your attention is given over here to what's going on by the casket and the family and so on, then uh, the guy who's in charge, um, all of a sudden he just quit talking and got quiet. He got a little nervous. I thought. Well, don't they know what to do next? And all of a sudden, he starts blowing taps. Boy, what a service. What a stirring thing in your heart. And one of the guys that was with me said, boy, he said, I don't know about you. He said, but that just moves me. That was so moving and stirring. And it was. To see the honor and the dignity with with which they cared for one that was a fellow of theirs, a fellow policeman, a fellow soldier. I say that to say, consider then what honor and dignity and what glory will be shown when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and he chooses to honor his faithful saints. Those who are able, those who do Stand before his presence, blameless with exceeding joy. What is it going to be like in that day? Ooh, I just go, you know, man, I mean, what is it going to be like? I can't comprehend it. It is fathomless to me to imagine the pomp and the dignity and the joy, the exceeding joy. How happy. Well, I'm t- in other words, When it all comes to pass and it really happens, you're going to be the happiest person around. The happiest. On the contrary, think of the weeping and the gnashing of teeth, the sorrow and the disappointment that's going to come to those 
who, who, to use the language of the Bible, they fell along the way, or they did not walk according to the truth or according to the faith. Had the opportunity, but gave it up. Didn't count the cost. Grabbed a hold of the plow, set their hands to it, and then when things got tough and the field got rocky, and they turned and went the other way and just gave it up. Not going to be a wonderful sight, see. Paul said, in every good work, they're going to be found disapproved. See, there will be those there at the judgment seat who will be approved, and then there will be those who will be disapproved. So I want to encourage you today, not put you in despair, but help you to see and to recognize the power that's right here in this book to walk the kind of life that Paul talks about, Jesus talks about, Jude talks about. It's available to us, and we can do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now for the joy of our Lord Jesus Christ, the privilege we have to serve him. And I do ask and pray, Father, that as we depart to go our ways to our homes and to live out and walk our lives, that we would do so with joy and gladness in our hearts and considering the words of our Lord Jesus and the promise that he's given unto us of that life to come. Lord, help us to do it faithfully and joyfully. Lord, I pray if there's even anyone here who needs to consider the cost and put their hands to the plow and determine to be that kind of a disciple, I pray that you'll move upon their hearts today to do that very thing. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.